Please help me give her a very warm welcome, Zenobia Neal. Hey everybody, thanks for coming. Um, so I was writing another novel a couple years ago and I got stuck in a place where my character had to do something really bad. And it wasn't writer's block, I just couldn't make him do it. So I decided, I decided to start writing another book. And that was this book. <laughs> and I didn't think anybody would ever really hear it, and I never expected to read it to people. So um, I'm gonna try really hard not to blush. Um, and it's not like really inappropriate for children, but it's not, well, I mean, because there are children here. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that children read it because that would be really wrong. Um, I'm saying if your children are here, it's just more suggestive than graphic, but la 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 la. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is from Psyche Unbound. This is chapter one. It's called The Sacrifice. And can you hear me okay? okay? Psyche stood alone on the beach, trembling with fear and cold. She had been left as the priest of Apollo commanded, wearing nothing but a red linen shawl and a golden necklace. As the waves crashed onto the sand, she stared at the ocean and waited for the monster to come for her. Crossing her arms over her chest, she clutched the shawl in her fists, but the thin fabric offered little protection from the wind or her thoughts. The people in her city by the sea had lined the streets to watch the procession, weeping as she walked by with her father and mother and all of their retainers. The little girls had thrown rose petals for her to, go to tread upon, and the women had wailed as if they were going to her funeral, yet it was their adoration that had brought her here. The oracle had not said if the monster would devour her or keep her for ill use. Psyche tried to convince herself that dying did not frighten her. Then, at least, she would descend to Hades as a shade and drink from the river Lethe, her sorrow and suffering done. There was very little in her life she wanted to remember. Suddenly, the sand beneath her shifted. The smell of roses and sea spray surrounded her. Psyche felt the presence of an immortal, an essence of pleasure, expectation, and yearning. Making an effort not to gape, she gazed at the goddess of love and beauty. One and a half times the size of a mortal woman, Venus towered above Psyche. The goddess's gown was fashioned from dark blue silk and seaweed. The rippled kelp was interwoven with the shimmering fabric, adorned with pearls and seashells and threaded with pure gold. Venus was more dazzling than any mortal woman could hope to be, more gorgeous than a man could dream of. Her skin was pure white, like sea foam sparkling in the sun, her lips red and full. Her fair hair, gathered into a complicated bun, glittered as if made of real gold. When the goddess gazed down on the girl, Psyche felt as if she were the only one in the world, until a flash of burning hatred radiated from Venus's eyes, how the goddess detested her. Psyche knelt and let go of the red shawl, which was taken by the wind. It flew high in the sky, soaring like a bird. Looking down in supplication, her eyes rested on the goddess's feet, Delicate and fine, the most perfect feet in the world. The nails were clear and even, polished like seashells. The ankles trim and the calves full and strong. She dared not look any higher. Venus lifted Psyche's chin, raising her face to inspect her. The girl was almost blinded by the goddess's beauty, though later she could not recall exactly what she had seen. 
only that the goddess's eyes were blue and angry like the sea. Yet Venus's hand, strong and firm, holding her jaw, made her skin begin to hum with vibrations of pleasure. Venus pulled Psyche up off her knees and stared down at her with disdain. Psyche's long, golden hair had come undone in the wind and flew behind her. It was shameful for the goddess of love and beauty to see her so disheveled. Venus gathered Psyche's hair into her hand and wrapped it around her wrist twice, pulling until Psyche bit her lip. Beautiful Psyche, I'm sorry, beautiful Venus said. Her voice, even icy with hatred, was like a song. They all think you're so beautiful, but you're just a little mouse waiting for a lion. The goddess kept the mortal's plump breast in her hand. Psyche's heart pounded in fear, yet the goddess's touch on her hardened nipple brought a bolt of pleasure. You expected to marry a prince, little Psyche, but soon a monster will come for you. It will be his claw on your breast. Venus smiled then. A wicked smile. You will be a worthy sacrifice. Perhaps the monster will take your virginity before he devours you. <laughs> Venus, <laughs> la, 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 la. <laughs> Venus laughed, releasing Psyche's hair. The girl fell back to the sand on her knees, bereft by the lack of the goddess's touch and terrified by her words. Tears came to Psyche's eyes. She had not known pleasure until a moment ago. She had not known what it was to be alive until she was about to die. When she dared to look up, the goddess had vanished. Now the monster would rise up from the sea, or perhaps he would come from the sky and swoop down on her. Clasped in his talons, he would carry her away to his cave, a cold, dark place strewn with the bones of the girls he had had before. The wind roared in her ears. She wiped away her tears and sensed a presence on the beach. He was here for her. But when she turned toward the rushing waves, she did not see a monster. Instead, a beautiful winged man, dark-haired and golden eyes, gazed at her with curiosity. He was bare-chested, wearing only a silver breechcloth. His muscular legs were tanned from the sun, and he held a golden bow in his right hand. She could see the golden and leather and leaden arrows peeking out of the leather quiver on his back, gold for love and lead for hatred. The silhouette of his dark brown wings was folded against his back. Fearing she had stared at him too openly, she cast her gaze down in fear and saw that his feet were beautiful like his mother's. The god of love approached her quickly, a hunter overtaking his prey, but he did not take aim at her with his bow. Instead, he slid it over his shoulder so the bowstring crossed the leather strap of his quiver. Taking her hands, he pulled her close and spread his wings. She stared in awe at the beauty of the feathers, at the span of his wings, gathering her to him. He pressed her against his chest and began to lift off the ground. As the sand fell away from her, she struggled against him in a panic. To feel the earth slip away from her feet, she clung to him for her life. Terror of being airborne gripped her. Fearing he would pitch her into the sea, she held fast to him, clinging with all her might. But as the wild blue waves grew smaller, she realized his touch was gentle. Her fear turned to wonder. She was flying. The blue sea was getting farther and farther away. Above the gray mist of the beach, the sky was blue and the sun warmed her. The wind did not chill her anymore, but felt good against her skin. The sea below, the sky around her, the God who held her, everything was suddenly magnificent. She became aware of her heart pounding against the hardened muscles of his chest, her pale breasts flush against his bare skin. His embrace warmed her and she stopped trembling. But, she looked, but as she looked down and saw only his sandaled feet and legs below her, 
she realized, to her horror, she had grabbed onto her, him with her legs like a frightened child. Without realizing, she had pressed the most secret part of herself into him. She could feel the moisture of her sex rubbing against his taut abdomen just above his breechcloth. She should let go, should right herself and beg his forgiveness, but she was still too terrified he would drop her. A smile played around his pink lips, his right arm cradling her mid-back, while his left hand cupped her buttock. He removed his arm from her back for a moment, and she clung to him more tightly, the softness of her thighs clinging to his hip, to hip bones. He squeezed her buttock, supporting her there and kneading the flesh, pushing her harder against him. His touch caused some of the vibrations of pleasure the goddess had given her, only she did not think it was because he was a god. She stared into his golden eyes, lost there, unable to look away, for she felt a sensation unlike any she had known. Despite already being airborne, as, she gazed, as he gazed at her, she felt even lighter, as if her heart and soul were weightless. As she stared deep into the blackness of his pupils, she felt he was made of air, the only air she wanted to breathe. Suddenly, she was no longer willing to die. She wanted to live only to see those eyes, to see herself reflected back in his gaze. Please, she said, before even realizing she was speaking. He smirked with amused patience as he supported her from below. She pressed against him harder and felt the joy of her flesh against his, her erect nipples against his muscular chest, her arms around his neck, the leather strap around his quiver, and the slight string of his bow, the only thing between them. He lifted a finger to his lips, requiring her silence, and, as he did so, she realized the ocean was gone and they were over land. She did not want to let go, to be surrendered to her fate, yet there was no other way. She knew that, but she would not have agreed to die had she known there was this. He put his arm back around her and locked his eyes with hers. It was pure pleasure for a moment, all the more dear for being fleeting. He started to descend. Looking down, she saw that they were above a mountain, inaccessible except by air. She held tight, full of yearning he would not permit her to speak. He fluttered to the ground softly, but she felt as if she were still moving, even when his feet touched the grass. Clutching him, she buried her face in the valley between his neck and shoulder. He stood still, waiting, no longer holding her tightly. When she did not move, he lifted her off him, as if she weighed nothing. She stepped tentatively upon the soft grass and almost fell, but he grasped her hand and steadied her. The moisture she had left on his abdomen glistened in the sun. She should be mortified, yet she was not. She longed to make him glisten in other places as well. It was unclear what she was meant to do next. Perhaps go on her knees before him in gratitude and awe, or perhaps he would lead her to the altar. If he held the knife, she would not fight if he looked into her eyes while he did it. They gazed at each other a moment, two separate beings, one immortal, the other waiting to die for the crime of being too beautiful. But when he looked away from her, up into the heavens where he would return, I'm sorry, but he looked away from her up into the heavens where he would return. He had only come to deliver her to the monster. Now he would leave her to her fate. She eyed his bow, wondering if he would shoot her first. He could be merciful and shoot her with a gold-tipped arrow so she would love the monster. If he did, she would have a piece of him inside her. 
But no, he was the son of the goddess of love and beauty, the one who hated her. He, would not, he could give her no mercy with his mother's blessing. It was more likely he would shoot her so she would love the monster's servant, or a tree, or rabbit. The goddess would like that. But if he did that, at least she would forget about him. For she thought even if he pierced her with a gold-tipped arrow, and he was the first one she saw, she would not love him more than she already did. But he did not reach for his bow, did not pull an arrow from his quiver. Instead, his wings began to flutter, causing a gentle wind to engulf them both. She reached for him, and he took her hand and pulled it to his lips, kissing the palm tenderly. tenderly. Then he let her go and rose off the ground. Tears came, and she bit her lip to keep silent. She did not want him to remember her, if he remembered her at all, as a coward. His open wings glistened in the sun as he ascended into the sky. He watched her staring up at him in silence. Perhaps there was pity on his face, but she could not be sure. Then he faded to a speck, and she fell to the soft earth, weeping. That's the end of chapter one. (laughs) Um, So, yes, there is a giveaway. Um, did everybody who wanted to put their name in this bucket? <laughs> it's like secretive. Stella! <laughs> <laughs> Conveniently located behind the man holding the bag. Um, yeah, so does anybody have any questions? The answer is in chapter two. <laughs> um, so how, can I ask how many of you are familiar with the myth of Cupid and Psyche? Are you familiar with the myth of Cupid and Psyche? Do you know Cupid and Psyche? Yeah. Okay, one more time. Who knows Cupid and Psyche? Okay. All right. Who's heard of Cupid and Psyche? <laughs> Okay, I um, when I wanted to write this story, I had this idea in my mind that of them being on the beach, but in the original story, there's no beach, and um, I it, it's actually she's taken to a mountain and it's like a funeral. But I had this this image that I really liked, so I just went with it, and then I went back and did the research, um, and checked, and tried to make it conform, but also be really interesting. Um, so the original story of Cupid and Psyche is in The Golden Ass by Elite, by not Robert Graves, Apuleius. I wasn't sure how to pronounce that right. Um, and so the story is really interesting. It's about a guy who gets turned, in, turned into a donkey, but it's told in the first person. You don't hear a lot of that these days. So. Um, yeah, so anyone have any questions? Yes. What drew you particularly to this story? Uh, uh-huh. Beyond your curiosity. This story is interesting because it's kind of like Beauty and the Beast and it's kind of like Rumpelstiltskin. So it's like she has to marry a monster and he comes to her only in the dark. And I thought, like, what would that be like to have this, like, magical life? Like, she's in a palace with these invisible servants. And but she and she likes her husband, but she doesn't know who he is. So that seemed like a really compelling idea. Um, 
later I found out that it's one of the few stories where there's like a, a woman who goes on a hero's journey. And so that's really intriguing as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always interested in the process. Um, so in developing your characters, did you already have an idea of what they would be like or did they come to you as you were writing? Um, that's a good question about the process. I think, I mean, the first, like I said, this was kind of a distraction from my other novel. So um, I wrote it, and then like as I as I was writing it, the characters, especially Venus and Mars, like really asserted themselves um, the way that Venus and Mars will. <laughs> so and um, so yeah, they they came like they were kind of like not that deep at first and then they got more fleshed out. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to go back to the other one that made you? Yeah, so I finished I finished the other one. Um, I needed after after I wrote this, I finished the other one. I made my character do the really bad thing and um, it was able and then he was able to end the book. <laughs> but yeah, so I finished that one and now I'm working on the second one in that series. Yeah, and I have some other Greek mythology that I've started to. I guess my process is more like to have a lot of different things happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, any other questions? How, how do you work your crafts? Do you do one through or do you go back? Yeah, I've learned that that is the way to do it by not doing that. So. <laughs> Um, the novel that's taken me forever, I've had like, you know, 200 drafts, but now my, my decision is to write a draft and then to go back. It's easier to say than do though. It's like, I just want to go back to the beginning. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do from here on out <laughs> is just write the first draft. I've also discovered like writing it single spaced is great. And then when you double space it, you're like, wow, so many words, so many pages. <laughs> so that's a fun trick. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever feel any pressure to adhere to the original anthology? Or was there ever any struggle you wanting to veer off and add in your own things? And how did you through that. That was kind of a cool thing that, because um, the original was like a little bit crazy because it's Roman culture, ancient Roman culture, and it's really interesting to listen to because every single person is like the most like honest person or the vilest beast. Like there's no medium. Everything is really extreme. So I felt as I wrote it and I got more into it, um, certain characters just kind of like created themselves and in the original she has four trials but the f the third one was kind of boring so I just like I felt like I really needed her to to a uh, spoiler spoiler alert to go to the underworld um, I felt like I wanted her to go there and not have another thing she had to do before she went there so I mean it's it's interesting to like have a story already written, but then be like, mm, not that, not this, this version, they don't do that. Kind of like how people redo fairy tales all the time. Yeah. Yeah. When did you know that you wanted to write erotica? Well, <laughs> That's the question. when did I, when did I know I wanted to write erotica? Like that genre that? Um, 
That's a good question. Probably in college, maybe even high school. I just always feel like if you're creating a magical world, there should be sex in it. <laughs> it just makes sense to me. Like if you're like creating this like fantasy world, it should be like really fun. Crazy sex with all kinds of mythical creatures. <laughs> so yeah. And then it was, um, erotic has always been very inspiration. Like it's all, I've always been very driven to write because there's going to be something erotic. And it's exciting in this case that I'm actually writing about Eros and that um, my publisher is, and the imprint is called Eros. So that worked out perfectly. What's the hardest thing about writing eroticas? Coming up with, like, not being cliche and using horrible um, vocabulary words. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like describing things tastefully and not, I mean, hopefully, you know, not, not writing things that are too, um, it's like a fine line of being like exciting, but not like, I don't know. I've just, I've read a lot of things that I, I'm like, I don't want to use that word. Did you have to read a lot of other Um, I kind of did. And then I was, I read a lot that I was like, I don't want to write like that. Um, finding a balance finding appropriate synonyms and that there is just no good vocabulary word in English for womanhood (laughs) (laughs) like there just isn't so I need to do some research about how to say that in ancient Greek and then I think it can sound much better (laughs) that's my biggest challenge (laughs) yay (laughs) it's a good challenge Anybody else? So thank you everyone for coming and for Skylight for having me and us. And there's lots of food. And we're going to hang out and um, I'm going to sign some books. And then afterwards we're going to have an after party. This makes me feel very old. We're going to have an after party at 645! Um, at the Rockwell, which is the third location I've told people. So the Dresden is closed and Cafe Figaro can't accommodate us. So at the Rockwell, under Zenobia Nil, we're going to hang out if anybody wants to get drinks and snacks. So thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.